This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. I'd like to welcome everybody to the library. We're going to get started. Uh, thanks for coming. Today is the first event, our kickoff event for our One Book, One College program uh, that's centered around Max Brooks's book, World War Z. So I'm going to do a couple quick acknowledgments, and then we'll introduce our speaker, and it's going to be awesome. Um, the, I just want to thank our Dean, Jane Long, our Vice President, Pamela Haney, and President Sylvia Jenkins. When we came to her last year and said, hey, we want to do a whole year of programming and events about zombies, um, they kind of raised their eyebrows and said, really? And they um, gave us um, the go-ahead, so I appreciate their support and trust that we're not just going to be, you know, watching Walking Dead all year, but actually talking about academic kinds of things. So thank you to them. And I also want to acknowledge um, Tish Hayes, who's in the back. She's a librarian. She's the one that said, hey, this would make a great book as a one book, and she's totally right, and it's awesome. So uh, thanks to that. Um, we have almost one event every week about zombies and things related to zombies for the rest of this term. And in October, we're having our World War M Moraine Zone Zombie Apocalypse on campus. It's a game. Don't worry, there's no running around. Anyone can play. Um, it's really aimed at classes. So if you don't know about that, go on our website and take a look. It's going to be um, fun. So we encourage you to do that. Okay, with that being said, let me introduce our speaker. Uh, we're very excited uh, to welcome Maureen Barney, who is a lecturer in the Department of Literature and Languages at Roosevelt University. Uh, she has a BA in English from the University of Illinois and a Master's uh, for, in English from Northern Arizona University. Uh, we are excited because the, the talk that she's giving today is actually uh, a paper that she's going to give at a conference, and that's the Midwest Popular Cultural Association Conference in St. Louis. So this is like real stuff. It's zombies, yes, but it's actual thinking about um, the, the message, the symbolism, the meaning behind zombie literature and what we think about. I should take a moment to acknowledge, you know, today's 9-11, and we look back and we're, we're thinking about the horrible events that happened um, over a decade ago, and the stories about you know the post-apocalyptic world, a lot of us felt like we lived through that when it happened. And so we use these kind of stories to help us understand these kind of awful things um, that happened. So it's appropriate that we have this event today. So with that, enough of me. Thank you all for coming, and here's Marie. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, my talk is called Necessary Fictions, the Hopeful Mythology of World War Z. The zombie apocalypse is not to come. In our collective fantasies, it has already unfolded, and we dwell in its aftermath. So says the medievalist monster scholar Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, after recounting the proliferation of zombie-related movies, books, games, and even children's media over the last several years. Despite the objections of cultural critics that zombies have outlived their usefulness, the zombie outbreak continues, in particular with the recent announcement that World War Z will become a movie franchise, existing longer into the future than many of us might wish. Such is the way of the zombie apocalypse. Many of you may find this welcome news, while others may wonder where these zombies have come from and what do they mean, if anything. Today I'm going to talk about the, the history and the cultural significance of the zombie apocalypse as a metaphor, and some of the ways in which we might understand how the work of Max Brooks fits into that history. 
The current popularity of apocalyptic narratives is no accident. It speaks to a contemporary desire to question, dismantle, and replace the cultural myths and social narratives that no longer work for us. In contemporary America, for instance, there's no longer a single story. What some might call a defining mythology and what I'll call a grand narrative that provides all of us with adequate models by which we can live. We may have once had a compelling national identity, a vision of a city on the hill, a myth of up by the bootstraps, rugged individualism, and an American dream that gave our people direction and hope. But now we have red and blue states, congressional gridlock, expanding religious pluralism, and continuing waves of new immigrants with increasingly diverse ways of life. While old grand narratives may have been useful at one time, increasing diversity requires us to alter or even completely reject the grand narratives that no longer unite us. However, it can be difficult to challenge such narratives and nearly impossible to replace them when they no longer seem to benefit us. We cling to them because they help us make sense of our past experiences and they compel us to see meaning and significance in our lives. These narratives prop up our culture, giving us a sense of identity. Questioning or rejecting these narratives puts us at risk of feeling empty and hopeless. Because many of these grand narratives can also reinforce structural inequalities and unearned privilege, they tend to encourage misunderstanding, alienation, and even violence between social groups with different perspectives and values, which means it is necessary to provide space to question and transform these narratives. In Apocalyptic Transformation, Apocalypse and the Postmodern Imagination, scholar Elizabeth K. Rosen explains that apocalyptic fiction provides such a landscape for exploring and questioning these narratives that prop up our cultures. For Rosen, the cultural fragmentation of the postmodern age has led to a resurgence of apocalyptic fiction, and she says, postmodernism challenges traditional sense-making structures, which it calls grand or meta-narratives, refusing to impose one point of view or privilege one kind of culture over another, and playfully celebrating the kind of fragmentation and lack of coherency in doctrines, which has been the cause of anxiety or gloom for some. A catastrophic event such as a nuclear war, a viral plague, an alien invasion, or an asteroid strike allows an author to wipe the slate clean, releasing us briefly from the narratives that sustain our assumptions about reality, and allowing us to imagine alternatives. In this way, most apocalyptic fiction is imbued with a sense of hope, for as John Berger notes in After the End, the end is never the end. The apocalyptic text announces and describes the end of the world, but then the text does not end, and the world represented in the text does not end, and neither does the world itself. The real ending in apocalyptic fiction is the end of a certain way of thinking or a certain set of beliefs. While this end may be devastating and may even come with a significant loss of life, there are usually enough humans, animals, and plants left over to make some kind of new start. Ideally, the new start will bring with it a new narrative or new set of stories and mythologies that allow the remaining society to forge ahead into the unknown. So, if the zombie apocalypse has already happened, in fiction and film at least, then what grand narratives has it encouraged us to challenge? 
One pervasive narrative that troubles many scholars, politicians, and social critics concerns the public, uh, public discourse about immigration and terrorism. Zombie narrative as a particular form of apocalyptic fiction tends to reflect the dominant fears of the age that produces it. In the aftermath of the attacks on the World Trade Center in New York on September 11, 2001, many Americans felt a sense of fear associated with difference. Anyone who wasn't part of the mainstream white Christian culture was not to be trusted. Scholars argue that zombies provide the perfect metaphor for the American cultural reaction to immigrants and terrorists, often considered one and the same, who threaten to overrun our borders and disrupt our very way of life. While this is a compelling interpretation of zombie symbolism supported by a number of texts and films, Max Brooks doesn't quite fit into this paradigm and seems to present readers with a very different message in World War Z. Taken together with his earlier text, The Zombie Survival Guide, Brooks establishes and builds on a decidedly different zombie mythology in which zombies do not represent a dehumanized enemy. This is due in part to the postmodern context in which Brooks writes that doesn't allow for a single privileged perspective. Our contemporary fears may be grounded in socially constructed narratives about people who are different, but the meta-fear of our age is this narrative of fear that divides us. And Brooks encourages us to question and dismantle our cultural assumptions about difference that prevent us from coming together around a common purpose. Instead, he suggests that we can no longer justify war against dehumanized enemies in a postmodern age, so we must question the grand narratives that encourage fear and division. So we all know monsters have always been a necessary element of our cultural mythologies. They are the evil force against which our heroes can fight in the name of good. So consider, for example, Gandalf versus the Belrog in Lord of the Rings. We don't wonder about where the Belrog comes from or why he's chasing the fellowship through the mine, and Gandalf doesn't offer any explanations about why the Belrog shall not be allowed to pass. No hobbits, men, elves, or readers question his logic because Gandalf is good, and the Belrog is obviously, clearly evil. The grand narrative of good versus evil props up many social and cultural institutions and it often goes entirely unquestioned. Postmodern philosophy, however, challenges us to rethink our assumptions about monsters and the heroes who fight and kill them. Are these monsters truly evil or are they merely misunderstood others who have been denied the agency to tell their own stories? Popular fiction provides plenty of examples in which readers are invited to explore the subjectivity of monsters. Swamp Thing is the victim of an irresponsible and jealous scientist. He, is uh, he has reason to seek revenge against humanity, but instead lives to protect his swamp home and surrounding environment. The vampire Lestat is above all a tragic figure, doomed to live forever in fluctuation between happiness and misery. These monsters are named as such because they don't have a place to belong in a society that relies on easily identifiable stereotypes and categories. Even though all people are clearly, clearly capable of both good and evil, individuals don't like to think of themselves as evil. When I am forced to confront something that I understand as evil, I want to separate it from myself. 
I label it as other than me and categorize it as different, allowing me to categorize myself as good. While many authors have tried to confront these dichotomies and deconstruct them, it's difficult to do this with zombies. Zombies were once human, but no longer. What's changed about them is they've been stripped of the capability for doing good that all humans have, and what's left seems to be pure evil, cannibalism, violence, and destruction. But they haven't always been this way. In fact, zombies tend to change throughout history depending on the state of society at the time a narrative is produced. The zombies of our time bear little resemblance to those which immigrated to America in Haitian ethnography of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, though some of the original social fears represented by those early monsters associated with racism and xenophobia have followed the genre to the present day. According to Kyle William Bishop's recent study of zombie fiction, early Haitian voodoo zombies who were transformed by and held under the control of voodoo priests incited a different kind of fear in audiences. The central horrific feature is the loss of autonomy and control, having one's will stripped to become a slave. Early films such as White Zombie in 1932 and I Walked with a Zombie in 1943 illustrate the fear of becoming a zombie and losing one's status as a free-thinking individual, which, according to Bishop, represents the ultimate imperialist dream, a slave laborer that is truly a thing, unthinking, unaspiring, and non-threatening. In a racist American culture of the 30s and 40s, the ultimate fear for white moviegoers was becoming more like a black colonized subject. In contemporary zombie narrative, uh, beginning with George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968, the zombie is more threatening and murderous. While this may have something to do with relaxed censorship in the film industry, it also reflects the social anxieties of that point in American history. Romero's zombies are not created on purpose to do their master's bidding, but by accident. The result of unchecked nuclear contamination, an experiment gone wrong, or a new biological weapon with catastrophic consequences. Moreover, by transforming the zombie catalyst from a voodoo ritual into a contagious virus, Romero is also the first to illustrate how the zombie infection is symbolic of buying into a grand narrative, such as patriarchy, capitalism, or militarism. Many people may comfort themselves with the notion that we can reform or transform institutions from the inside, but as the zombie narrative persuasively demonstrates, buying in is not a path to reform, but a deadly contagion. One cannot stop being a zombie. Once infected, you're on the inside, and the first tragedy is the insider's individuality and personal agency. This works both ways, of course, for both the zombies and the humans. Once we humans buy into a fear of dehumanized others, it can be difficult to think or operate outside of that narrative. The zombie metaphor illustrates the difficulty of asking questions inside a grand narrative. One doesn't ask, why are we killing these zombies? Or why do these zombies deserve to die? One simply kills the zombies, preferably with abandon and a blunt instrument for optimum splatter. <laughs> While Romero was the first to explore the contagion of buying in, the theme remains popular today. Starting with 28 Days Later in 2002, the monsters are not dead, but infected with a virus aptly named Rage that makes them commit atrocious acts of violence against their fellow human beings. 
the visual imagery of the film, particularly the barren cityscape littered with the trinkets of civilization and papered with the photos of the missing, uncannily mirrors the ubiquitous images of New York after the World Trade Center bombing, while the zombies themselves have clearly come to signify the reigning fear of our age, uh, terrorism. As scholar Gail Baldwin explains, zombies could be anyone, your neighbor, your partner, your mother, your child, similar to terrorists, who are transformed via ideological contagion into something we want to believe is less than human. As people, however, terrorists are post-colonial subjects. They are subalterns who cannot speak for themselves. Deprived of agency, they resort to violence. However, instead of trying to understand the conditions that created their perceived necessity for violence, we cling to the grand narrative of good and evil in which we label them as irrational and inhuman, and in our own perceived necessity for violence, we set out to destroy them utterly. Baldwin says, according to the grand narrative of the colonizer, the terrorist represents evil, uh, the West represents good, and the call is for self-sacrifice so that the evil plague may be eradicated and future generations may live. In this scenario orchestrated around terrorists, the ultimate other, we do not need to negotiate or learn from the other. The other is not worthy of sympathy, compassion, or understanding. In a situation where people are called upon to deal with terrorists, or zombies for that matter, the hope is not that we will talk out our differences and find a common way forward. Rather, the hope will be that all nations will get on board and become a coalition of the willing. In the article World War Z and the End of Religion as We Know It, Gail Baldwin argues that Max Brooks' most recent entrance into the zombie pantheon takes this coalition of the willing approach in which each citizen must overcome a sense of compassion for the infected and come together as a community of violence. In other words, Baldwin says that Brooks equates his zombies with terrorists, and in order to defeat such an enemy, we must abandon compassion, dehumanize the enemy, and commit to total war. Dehumanizing narratives do not benefit either side, but because they are necessary to justify war, the narrative of the war on terror has constructed entire regions of the world and diverse communities of people as evil terrorists. The recent resurgence of zombie film and fiction in the last 12 years illustrates the shift in our cultural narrative as the monsters start to seem less like conformists and mindless consumers and more like the monsters we hear about on the evening news. However, the use of the terrorist metaphor in most zombie fiction has not necessarily reinforced dehumanizing narratives as scholars like Gail Baldwin have suggested. Instead, film, filmmakers have challenged these narratives by exploring zombie subjectivity. Notable examples include Romero's Day of the Dead, which explores the possibility of zombie intelligence, and the, recent, the more recent Land of the Dead, in which zombie protagonists capture the sympathy of the audience. In these films, the central fear has shifted from the spread of an idea that is perceived to be dangerous, such as capitalism and consumerism, to the spread of a population of a population with an ideology that is perceived to be dangerous, such as Islam's, Islam or Muslims. Other people are no longer individuals, but rather seen as true believers in a grand narrative that is different from our own. 
Divisions arise among human survivors based on how they view and interact with zombies, and the choices offered seem to be to show compassion or to exploit zombies and fellow humans alike for one's own personal gain. Land of the Dead, for instance, encourages audience identification with compassionate characters, and even with the zombies themselves. In one instance, the main human character, Riley, played by Simon Baker, refers to the destruction of zombies as a massacre, and the zombie group led by Big Daddy, played by Eugene Clark, seems more capable of working together toward a common goal than the humans who are plagued by self-interest. The themes Romero explores in these films seem to be harbingers for the future of the genre. Jonathan Levine's film Warm Bodies features a zombie protagonist who attempts to find love with a human girl, and the BBC television show In the Flesh takes place after the resolution of a zombie outbreak in which infected people are treated and cured and rehabilitated zombies must be integrated back into society. So Brooks challenges the terrorist metaphor in a slightly different way. Perhaps noticing this trend to humanize zombies and explore their subjectivity, Max Brooks responds by foreclosing the possibility that zombies can be understood as human subjects, either symbolically or in the reality of his narrative. The zombie virus, Solanum, is not found in nature, uh, according to the Zombie Survival Guide. Since humans are responsible for creating the virus, the zombies don't symbolize any group of human enemies, but rather the long-term effects of short-sighted human choices. While the reigning mythology requires that zombies are already dead when they transform, Brooks takes this even further. At the beginning of the Zombie Survival Guide, he wastes no time establishing the impossibility of continued subjectivity in a zombie victim. Solanum works by traveling through the bloodstream, using the cells of the frontal lobe for replication, destroying them in the process. During this period, all bodily functions cease. By stopping the heart, the infected subject is rendered dead. The brain, however, remains alive but dormant, while the virus mutates its cells into a completely new organ. This is very different from a plot like 28 Days Later, in which the zombies are infected with a virus that doesn't actually kill them, but gives them added strength, lowered inhibitions, and prevents them from feeling pain, making the terrorist metaphor more apt. However, in World War Z, the human being you once knew and loved has died, and the remains have been completely transformed into a uh, non-human subject. There are not two sides here. There are no competing perspectives, nor any subjectivity to explore. In his mythology, in Brooks' mythology, the zombies are entirely inhuman, and eradicating them provides a just cause for all the human survivors. Contrary to Gail Baldwin's view that World War Z justifies dehumanization in a quest for total war, I see Max Brooks asking readers to resist the contagion of buying into dehumanizing narratives, which requires rigid notions of good and evil. By featuring multiple narratives told from the perspectives of a range of characters, Brooks demonstrates through oral history that survivors of the zombie plague may be diverse, but they are also inherently interconnected. The plague itself was not perpetrated by one person, group, or country populated by evildoers. Rather, Brooks takes pains to show that everyone played a role, 
and everyone deserves to shoulder the burden of blame. In fact, the multiple perspectives of World War Z demonstrate a resistance to these totalizing narratives by refusing to privilege a single point of view and by turning readers' attention away from the false enemies we imagine we see in our human brothers and sisters. Brooks' primary concern seems to be that humans might become more like the zombies they nearly succeeded in eradicating. The historian says this in his introduction. Will future generations care as much for chronologies and casualty statistics as they would for the personal accounts of individuals not so different from themselves? By excluding the human factor, aren't we risking the kind of personal detachment from a history that may, heaven forbid, lead us to one day repeat it? And in the end, isn't the human factor the only true difference between us and the enemy we now refer to as the living dead? Here, the dangers we face include undervaluing human stories and potentially repeating historical mistakes. The unnamed historian emphasizes the need to resist the dehumanization of people, providing us with a more positive and hopeful zombie mythology. In the zombie apocalypse, this is very important, people need to work together. If a single totalizing narrative determined who was in and who was out, it would remain difficult, if not impossible, to do that. In such a situation, divergent views cannot be understood as a rejection of a mainstream view. Instead, multiple perspectives must be tolerated and respected for the purpose of mutual survival. As Elizabeth Rosen says, Postmodernists may conceivably contribute to peace through their thoughtful versions of apocalypse by providing multiple antichrists and gods and fluctuating moralities. In this way, Brooks and other postmodern apocalypse writers seek less combustible creeds in which to place our hopes to suggest that we might actively seek to improve our lives in the here and now. In a post-apocalyptic society, multiple sense-making narratives might be allowed to coexist alongside each other, foreclosing the possibility of forced conformity to a single grand narrative that does not benefit us. While scholars like Gail Baldwin want to emphasize the militarism and the seeming lack of compassion in the characters of World War Z, militarism is really only one possible narrative among a range of choices. Joe Muhammad, a bicycle repairman and metal sculptor, is one character who makes a different choice, revealed through his attitude about Quislings. Joe describes Quislings as the people who went nutballs and started acting like zombies, and as the type of person who just can't deal with a fight-or-die situation. They're always drawn to what they're afraid of. Instead of resisting it, they try to please it, join it, try to be like it. When faced with a set of two opposing choices, Brooks suggests here that the right choice is to resist conformity. The problem is that the other choice represented in this case is fighting, which for some people might not be a valid option. And this is the closest that Brooks comes to a zombies as terrorist metaphor, where people can only be with us or with the enemy. While some officials in the novel try to present Quislings as humans with a mental disorder that requires treatment, Joe, uh, the bicycle repairman, clearly thinks of them as zombies, indistinguishable from the rest of the horde. Now, to some degree, this perspective is reasonable. 
The Quislings are very difficult to identify. In Joe's opinion, their identification with zombies is complete. While a headshot is not required to kill a Quisling, Joe says if you don't stop them with one shot, they just keep coming until they died. Talk about buying into a narrative that has no benefit. These humans have so thoroughly identified with the zombies that they don't feel pain. According to Joe, these people were zombies. Maybe not physically, but mentally you could not tell the difference. Even physically it might be hard if they were dirty enough, bloody enough, diseased enough. The only way Joe and his team could identify the Quislings was by their blinking. Zombies had no reason to blink, so any unblinking ghouls could be killed without hesitation. But if they did blink, our orders were to capture the Quislings if possible and use deadly force only in self-defense. While real zombies require and justify a violent response, when an enemy is thought to be human, even if his behaviors are equally violent and destructive, the human is captured with rehabilitation and treatment as the main priorities. Here, Gail Baldwin's argument that World War Z justifies indiscriminate slaughter of terrorists is again questioned. Since the Quislings are treated with some level of human compassion by institutions and their leaders, Joe may, may remain skeptical that treatment will be effective, but even he still feels compassion for the Quislings, emphasizing that he hasn't bought into a narrative of dehumanization. He says, I think the saddest thing is that they gave up so much and in the end lost anyway. Because even though we can't tell the difference between them, the real zombies can. The Quislings just lie there, not even trying to fight, writhing in that slow robotic way, eaten alive by the very creatures they were trying to be. When a person buys into a narrative that does not benefit him, Brooks shows that he is literally consumed by his conformity. And it's this contagion of buying in that stands out in Brooks' novel. Rather than symbolizing a dehumanized enemy, the zombies in Brooks' novel suggest that we are at risk of being consumed by an irrational fear of other humans. This metaphor is driven by an attachment to grand narratives that no longer serves our best interests. In this case, they do not serve the goal of human survival. An attachment to good versus evil, for instance, might encourage us to place blame for the astronomical loss of life on the character Paul Redeker, the calculating, heartless, apartheid-era war criminal responsible for creating the evacuation plan used by almost every major country after the outbreak of the virus. As it came to be known, the Redeker plan may have been successful, but it also resulted in the sacrifice of millions of people led away from military strongholds as zombie bait or left to fend for themselves in the Arctic wilderness. However, the historian's interview with Redeker shows not a hardened war criminal, but a broken shell of a man, displaced from his memories and his identity. He is not someone to hate and ridicule, but someone to pity. Still, many people may want to send him to hell for the part he played, according to the guard at the mental hospital, uh, and there are several other characters in the novel who illustrate how fear prevents us from seeing one another as allies. For instance, Saladin Kader of Palestine cannot believe that the Israelis are willing to provide a safe haven for Arab refugees. The story of a new plague that transformed dead bodies into bloodthirsty cannibals is too crazy for him to believe, especially when it comes from his most hated enemy. Saladin's hatred of a dehumanized other prevents him from working together with the Israelis 
in the face of a danger that threatens both groups equally. Clearly, buying into grand narratives of dehumanization doesn't benefit us, but some narratives appear at least on the surface to be more positive. American individualism, for instance, seems positive. For many generations, Americans celebrated our individualism. It allowed us to foster brilliance and even to question some of the more destructive grand narratives that have threatened our national unity. However, when taken too far, individualism can become a grand narrative itself, inadvertently encouraging a life of egotism, ignorance, and isolation, shutting out the needs of other people to focus on ourselves. When taken to the extremes of selfishness we see today in business, politics, and even the regular lives of citizens, it seems that our once celebrated ideal has insulated us to the point of making us short-sighted. Perhaps most strikingly, the entrepreneur character Breck Scott shows the results of buying into the narratives of individualism and ego-driven capitalism. Breck invents Phalanx, a supposed vaccine for the zombie virus, and markets it to the American public with great financial reward. Even though he admits that his cure is fake, he takes credit for many supposed positive benefits. Because of Phalanx, the biomed sector started to recover, which in turn jump-started the stock market, which then gave the impression of recovery, which then restored consumer confidence to stimulate an actual recovery. Phalanx hands down ended the recession. I, I ended the recession. Breck takes credit for obviously short-term and short-sighted benefits while overlooking the fact that his cure is still fake and he tricked the entire American population for financial gain. While some might say that buying into the narrative of capitalist individualism benefited Breck Scott, the benefits he saw are also short-lived. In the post-apocalyptic society in which global capitalism is no longer a useful narrative, Breck lives alone in self-imposed exile in Antarctica, fearing the day when the people he tricked might come looking for him, demanding a refund. Mary Jo Miller's family, on the other hand, exhibit a different kind of individualism in which the family unit takes precedence. The litany of worries that consume the Miller family are entirely personal. I was worried about my car payments and Tim's business loan. I was worried about the widening crack in the pool and the, no the new non-chlorinated filter that still left an LG film. Aiden needed a math tutor and Jenna needed just the right pair of Jamie Lynn Spears cleats for soccer camp. I had more than enough worries to keep me busy. The family has no interest in the stories and experiences of other people and any concerns about the world at large are treated with pills to block them out. Zoloft and Ritalin SR for Aiden and Adderall XR for Jenna. Blocking out concerns that seems overwhelming makes it, makes it impossible to foresee and prevent disaster, preferring instead to react to a crisis after it's too late. The narratives of capitalist individualism and narcissistic greed drive these cultural habits putting our experiences and stories in competition with each other. Mary Jo Miller explains that she and her family were so concerned with their own problems that a common purpose necessary for bringing people together to forge new narratives in the face of such large-scale change was nearly impossible. For Mary Jo's family, the, the zombies, in this case symbolizing the results of 
the, the results and implications of the stories the Millers have been avoiding and ignoring literally come crashing into their living room, forcing them finally to face reality and change their mindsets and behaviors. While the narratives on which we rely to make sense of our experiences can be useful and even necessary, we need to allow these narratives to change as our situations change. Several characters in World War Z find themselves in situations that have no reference point in earlier times. In such circumstances, we cannot rely on old narratives formulated for our former way of life. Instead, we must create new ones. Because there can be no comparison to earlier times, as Claire Curtis points out in Post-Apocalyptic Fiction and the Social Contract, an apocalypse results in something akin to a state of nature in which institutions are wiped out or rendered useless. In these situations, as Curtis puts it, will not go home again. While Curtis argues that a framework for organizing society after an apocalypse is desirable, it's also difficult to break away from outdated norms. Curtis notes that any social contract is necessarily a fiction because it is created by humans, it is artificial and is not natural. She also feels strongly that we require such fictions to provide a framework within which we can make sense of our situation and begin to improve it. Unfortunately, the post-apocalyptic stories she analyzes describes scenarios in which survivors find themselves attached to old grand narratives, leaving them incapable of developing a new social contract that improves upon the one that has collapsed, merely building new structures that reinforce old problems, such as genocide and patriarchal politics. Brooks suggests, through the personal stories of World War Z, that new personal frameworks are possible, but that a universal grand narrative that determines insiders and outsiders is neither desirable nor useful. The story of Roy Elliott, a former Hollywood filmmaker, exemplifies both the need for a framework and the recognition that a framework doesn't need to be real or true for everyone in order to be useful and effective. According to Roy, problems arise when people lack such a framework for making sense of their situation and providing a path forward out of misery. He says, the problem was psychological, a case of just giving up, not wanting to see tomorrow because you knew it could only bring more suffering, losing faith, the will to endure. It was helplessness, or at least the perception of helplessness. Roy addresses the problem by using movies to provide a hopeful narrative for the suffering survivors. This turns out to be ironic because his films relate hope and safety to the now gutted and defanged government and military, but at the same time, his films also expose the intentional lies of those same institutions. For example, Roy explains how useless many of the military's weapons are, particularly against zombies. His film series Wonder Weapons features cutting-edge technology, uh, none of which made any strategic difference, but all of which were psychological war winners for his audience. Roy believes that people need or think they need this kind of fictional narrative, a mythology really, stories of hope to get them through hard times. The problem is not that such stories exist, but rather the tendency for people to buy into them completely, to take them literally as unquestionable truth. Roy says, 
Lies are neither good nor bad. Like a fire, they can either keep you warm or burn you to death, depending on how they're used. The lies our government told us before the war were the ones that burned because they prevented us from doing what needed to be done. However, by the time I made Avalon, everyone was already doing everything they could possibly do to survive. The lies of the past were long gone, and now the truth was everywhere, shambling down their streets, crashing through their doors, clawing at their throats. Here, the zombies portray a result of blind acceptance of the literal meaning of a grand narrative at the same time that Brooks allows for the importance of the existence of these narratives. Roy's films provide people with a hopeful mythology and a necessary fiction. In order to avoid presenting readers with a universal grand narrative that all of the remaining human survivors must adhere to, Brooks' novel showcases several different attempts at personal storytelling, allowing for multiple coexisting narratives that don't require others to buy in. Christina Eliopoulos, a decorated officer in the Air Force, responds to her own experience of role loss by inventing a guardian angel. As the military loses efficacy and fails in its efforts again and again, Christina's sense of identity and self-worth suffers. She tells the historian, the one goal you've worked towards your whole life that you've sacrificed and suffered for, that's pushed you beyond limits you never knew you had, is now considered strategically invalid. Formerly, the narrative of military prowess and a band of brothers mentality might have worked well for an officer like Christina. However, when she crash lands in hostile territory crawling with zombies, Christina invents a personal narrative that allows her to make it alone. There are several signs that Christina's radio guardian, codenamed Mets fan, is really a projection of her own subconscious mind, including her knowledge of flight training and survival camp. At a significant turning point, when Christina has fallen hard on a rock and possibly broken her ankle, Met seems to know exactly the kind of talk that Christina needs to hear. Yelling obscenities and comparing Christina to her mother, Met's fan succeeds in getting Christina through a sure-death situation. Later, of course, Christina learns that there was no Skywatcher system in that area, no radio operator with the call sign Met's fan. But she is undeterred in her faith, both in the transformative experience and the reality of her personal savior. Presented with several truths by her psych evaluators that Metz is short for Metis, the mother of Athena, and that Christina's own mother grew up in the Bronx, Christina is still unshaken. Remarkably, the historian is not inclined to judge Christina, telling her that her story makes sense and calmly waiting for more. Clearly, the officials in charge are also uninterested in condemning Christina or accusing her of insanity, for as she notes, if they had thought I'd cracked up, why didn't I lose my flight status? Why did they give me this job? The lack of an easy universal truth is what stands out here. It's hard to condemn Christina for being crazy when her craziness is what saved her life. Christina gets the last word in the chapter when she says, who cares who she was or is? She was there when I needed her, and for the rest of my life, she'll always be with me. Christina's religious narrative doesn't need to be real, as long as it helps. Significantly, Christina's narrative does not require other people to buy in in order to legitimize her beliefs and experience. So while military might is portrayed as successful in some situations and not others, this brand of individual religion or personal mythology similar to Christina's 
seems to work for more people. Tomonaga Ichiro provides perhaps the best example of this. Blind from looking at the flash of light over the Yurikami Valley after the bomb drops on Hiroshima, he becomes a social outcast, no longer capable of buying into a grand narrative even if he wants to. Instead, all of his life, he has been used by Japanese authorities to compel others to accept the national narrative. In Japan, survivors of the bomb occupied a unique rung in our nation's social ladder, he says. We were trusted with sympathy, we were treated with sympathy and sorrow, victims and heroes and symbols for every political agenda. But whenever Tomonaga tries to find a place within the structure, he learns that his countrymen consider him a monster. He says, I learned so many polite ways to be rejected. After the zombie outbreak, he escapes to the mountains of a national park where he lives by his wits and remaining senses, waiting to die by the hand of a monster and the will of his gods. One day, however, he encounters a bear, which he first believes has been sent by his gods to assassinate him. He says, by exiling myself into the wilderness, I had polluted nature's purity. Now the gods had sent an assassin to do what I had been unable to do for so long, to erase my stink. I thanked the gods for their mercy. I wept as I prepared for the blow. This passage illustrates a man who has accepted and internalized a narrative that doesn't help him, a narrative about his role as a pariah, incapable of contributing anything of value. However, much to Tomonaga's surprise, the bear whimpers and backs away, revealing the hidden presence of a roaming zombie that poses much greater danger to Tomonaga than his own self-imposed shame. Killing the zombie and saving himself and the bear brings Tomonaga a strength and courage that drove away his shame as the sun drives the night from the heavens. Believing that his gods now favor him, Tomonaga develops a new narrative in which he is capable of playing a much more important role, in part because his former weaknesses are now recast as great strengths. Those with sight have a tendency to take walking for granted. The fault lies not in the eyes, but in the mind, a lazy thought process spoiled by a lifetime of optic nerve dependency. Not so for those like me. I already had to be on guard for potential danger. Every time I walked, I would halt, listen to and smell the wind, perhaps even press my ear to the ground. This method never failed me. I was never surprised, never caught off guard. Cast out by his people, Tomonaga creates his own personal narrative in which his cowardice and blindness take on new meaning and purpose. He is surprisingly agile and skilled with a weapon. He tells of killing large groups of zombies, overcoming situations in which he finds himself surrounded. While he admits that early battles were untidy, his newly constructed narrative gives him the necessary strength to succeed without resorting to dehumanization of his enemy. His killing is ritualistic, almost religious. I would unclasp my pack, stretch my limbs, sometimes just find a place to go sit quietly and meditate. I always took the time to bow and thank them for being so courteous to warn me. I almost felt sorry for the poor mindless filth to come all this way, slowly and methodically, only to end their journey with a split skull or severed neck. His religious narrative gives him courage without falling back on the familiar good versus evil narrative that requires him to dehumanize his enemy. Tomonaga himself is not the source of good, so he was sure to thank the spirit of each rock or cliff or waterfall 
that carried the zombies over thousand meter drops. His religious respect for other beings even brings him to show compassion for the so-called monsters that his situation compels him to slay. He knows the zombies themselves are not evil, the infection is. Responding to the historian's surprise that Tomonaga retrieved and buried the bodies of every zombie he killed, he says, I couldn't just leave it there desecrating the stream. It would not have been proper. After a particularly brutal battle against a herd of zombies, Tomonaga claims he dug for three days, making sure to separate the heads, the source of the evil infection, from the bodies. He says, I did not completely understand why I committed these acts. It just felt correct. Tomonaga doesn't dehumanize his enemies because he has rejected the grand narrative that required him to think that way. His new personal narrative has become more useful to him, allowing him to operate meaningfully in the post-apocalyptic world with a new sense of purpose. While Christina's and Tomonaga's personal mythologies may be compelling to others, neither requires a belief in doctrine or dogma on the part of a larger community. What they do require is the historian's and the reader's respect. I would even suggest that the real main character in World War Z is the reader, who must regard each individual narrative without judgment, allowing them to coexist alongside one another. Each character narrates his or her own version of history, writing the story in retrospect, and the combined tale doesn't result in an objective truth about the human experience of the zombie war. Likewise, each reader must decide whether she will listen to and respect the tales presented to her or judge and condemn the decisions and actions of the characters who are reaching out to the reader to be accepted and heard. In the end, the mythology established by Max Brooks in World War Z and the Zombie Survival Guide is a hopeful one. Brooks' narrative encourages a layered and complex understanding of truth a postmodern community in which each individual may live according to his or her own design are many personal mythologies existing alongside one another. As the zombie apocalypse unfolds in our collective imaginations, we may not be able to keep a lasting hold on the grandeur of civilization as we now know it, but if we see into the fictional facade of this grand narrative, we might recognize that we can question it and imagine new narratives that better fit our contemporary lives. In the end, each reader makes his or her own choice. Will we listen to one another's stories with acceptance and respect, or will we continue to fight one another over whose truth is the real truth? Must the shadowy monsters of the imagined apocalypse break down our doors before we can see a path forward? Thank you. Anybody have any questions? Questions? I'll come and find you with the microphone. All right, everyone's shy. Okay. <laughs> so then, um, one of the points of the one of the points of this is to look at all of the uh, perspectives of all these people and make sure that even though they may seem bad or feel bad to look at them without judgment and to like uh, I remember reading uh, what was the name of that one character the guy who uh, 
was uh, scooping up a newer dung and uh, as a fuel oh, source. He was, um, he was like a former, it was funny because he was a former uh, presidential administration right. advisor, and now his job is to scoop up poop. Uh, I see the irony. In yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, you know, the, uh, the bland way to look at it is that he's a douchebag because, you know, of what, of a keeping, of covering it up, of covering it mm -hmm. up and then not resorting to measures that needed to be taken. But even though you can be viewed as, the, is a bad guy. You have to look at it without. You have to look at what he did and his perspective without judgment. And right. The, and the idea there is that even though what he did, maybe his role was not particularly positive. Um, maybe he made decisions that had negative results for some uh, other people or for himself. But his experience still happened. It's still part of the story. And that's one of the things that I think Max Brooks wants us to look at is that, uh, you know, all of these different people had very different experiences and there isn't one way to see and understand history. And, um, well, we had one, one over here. Sorry. Hi. Um, hi. I just want to know, like, how do you think society has improved since 9-11, 2000, like, have we made progress towards understanding, like, terrorism and how we cannot dehumanize people from, like, certain religions and certain sections? Um, well, I mean, that's not exactly my specialty. <laughs> but, um, but, no, I mean, it's a very good question, and I think it's worth, it's worth talking about for sure. Um, I think that, you know, these, these grand narratives that I'm talking about are very powerful and they're pervasive. And what that means is that it's difficult for any individual to break away from that and behave in a way that is not prescribed by a grand narrative. And so if our grand narrative, if our society is telling us to dehumanize this or that group of people, and it may, it may always be somebody different, you know, uh, today it's, um, you know, Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime. Tomorrow it might be somebody else. Um, but any time that, that we're told to kind of think this way about somebody, it's very difficult to break out of that and think in a different way. So, I mean, I think that uh, while we may have, we've certainly made progress with the integration of, of many groups since we might take it further back and say since the civil rights movement, um, and I think we've, we've made some progress uh, in terms of the way our society at large thinks about uh, Islam since 9-11, there's a long way to go with all of these and, there, and the danger is that there's always going to be another group uh, that is dehumanized or in danger of being dehumanized. Thanks. <laughs> Other questions? Okay, so I have to talk about The Walking Dead. So how do you, in the narrative, right, how does this fit? How does Walking Dead compare to something like Brooks? Uh, in the, the larger zombie picture? Well, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Walking Dead comics, and so is it okay if I talk about that, or sure. do you want me to talk about the show? Yes, and for our students, we have all the graphic novels for checkout. Just awesome. You guys should check those out because they're really good. Um, 
it's it's interesting because uh, you know the the show calls it a rictocracy, or the like narrative around the show calls it a rictocracy. And that's certainly present in the books as well, the idea that Rick is the one who sort of sets the grand narrative, uh, the new grand narrative. And um, what I think is interesting about The Walking Dead is that there is, a, there is a new grand narrative, but it doesn't particularly improve on the one that, that has collapsed, you know? Um, I'm, I'm still working this out, but I think it's interesting that Rick takes his group to live in a prison which is symbolic of all kinds of problematic entities in our society, you know. Um, we might say that it's uh, symbolic of um, this symbolic imprisonment or buying into a grand narrative that I'm talking about in my paper. And so uh, the people who come to live in the prison are buying into the rictocracy, and they're doing so uh, of their own accord. They're not necessarily being forced. But I, I also don't think that, that Rick's uh, social structure improves upon the one that has collapsed. Cool. Okay. Other questions? In the back there? Yes. Oh, thank you. You made a point that um, people become conformists about a narrative. So how mm -hmm. will you... Um, people that are stuck in a sort of mentality, how will you convince them so they could switch their perspective? I would tell them, I would compare them to zombies <laughs> and ask them if that's what they want. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the great things about the, um, one of the great things about the zombie narrative is that uh, it's not positive, you know. Nobody wants to be a zombie. And so you can use this zombie narrative to try to convince people against all kinds of things. And that's what Romero is doing. If you've seen um, uh, Dawn of the Dead or even the remake, which is not horrible. Uh, it's not great, but it's not horrible. Um, you see that Romero is telling us not to be mindless consumers. And he's saying that if we are mindless consumers, we might as well be zombies. And if that's not what we want, um, then we should change. We should do something differently. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's what I'm trying to say when I, when I talk about narratives that don't benefit us. You know, if, we, um, if we're buying into a narrative that doesn't benefit us, then we have no reason to continue behaving that way. We're, we're behaving irrationally in that, in that sense. Yeah. Follow-up question? Yeah. Um, you said that we should um, question the narrative, but how do you determine what n narrative is the correct one? So. That's a good question, and I think that um, the correct narrative, in the context of, of my talk and of what I see Max Brooks doing in his book, um, the correct narrative is your own narrative. Uh, and you know what's interesting, this part actually got cut out of my paper, but what's interesting is there's another young Japanese man in the book who buys into Tomonaga's narrative, right? He sees what uh, Tomonaga is doing and he thinks it's really good and he kind of examines it for himself and finds it to be positive and useful for him and so he buys into that. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, what's important about that example 
is that in in except before he accepted Tomonaga's narrative, he evaluated it. You know, so he wasn't just uh, buying. I'm going to pick on uh, Apple. Sorry, iPhone users. He wasn't just buying the next iPhone because you know somebody told him it was slightly better than the iPhone that he has in his pocket. He has actually evaluated this uh, this story and determined that it's useful for him. Okay. Any further questions? I know that we're getting close to the next class time. All right. I don't want anybody to miss class. Okay. <laughs> so you talk about narr abandoning narratives that are no longer useful to us, but should we really abandon or take a narrative that is that is useful for that is useful to us but is moral but is morally wrong i mean should you i mean there are narratives you can accept that could right. be of use but these narratives can only some of these narratives can only be achieved by stepping on the shoulders of others Right, and I think that's a very good question, and I think that um, there's no there's no harm in, and, and I'm not advocating harm of any other being here, but there's no harm in listening to someone, and there's no harm in trying to hear and understand where that person is coming from. Um, the problem arises when you uh, listen to that person and then decide that because that person is doing it, it's okay for you to do it too. Um, like, I think of Dexter. Do you guys know the show Dexter? Of course you do, because it's awesome. Um, Dexter is obviously a monster, right? He's a, he's a terrible person. Um, he does horrible things. But through the, through the exploration of his subjectivity that the show allows, we can start to, the audience can start to understand why Dexter does the things that he does and why he behaves the way that he behaves. That's not to say that all of us are going to like create our own code and go out and become mass murderers, um, but we can, we certainly have a heightened understanding of why Dexter has made the choices and decisions that he's made and why he engages in those behaviors. Does that kind of answer your question? Exactly. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone, for coming. How about one more round of applause? Thank you, Maureen. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.